Well, we've been in 1 Corinthians now for a few weeks. Obviously, we're at chapter 6 at this point. Uh, I hope that as we've gone through that at least two things have been made clear to you. Uh, The first one would be this, that again, this is a church, the Corinthian church, that had a, a lot of problems that needed to be addressed. This whole letter is basically Paul going down this list of, of issues that he's heard about that are going on in the church that, that he's writing to them as their pastor, as an apostle, as the founder of the church, the church planter, to address. And that all of these problems, are they're, they're all related to this key issue, this, this gangrene of partisanship and disunity that was affecting the church because of their spiritual immaturity. Remember, they were looking more like the culture around them than they were looking like the church ought to look, and it was this partisanship divide. The second thing that I I hope what we, we get then is that as Paul is addressing these issues, for him, the key to addressing those problems was to remind the Corinthian church of their common identity and their hope in Jesus Christ, right? Do you remember who you are, church? Do you you remember what Christ has done? Do you remember how that unites us together as his people? He is our identity. He is our hope. Christians, the Corinthian Christians, all of us as Christians, have to remember the gospel. And we have to live then in light of its claim upon our lives. That's, That's what Paul is trying to get across to the Corinthians. So those are kind of the two big things. They're not the only things. The third thing that I hope we've realized is this. Again, this, this, device, this division in the church, these problems, weren't unique to the Corinthian church. That, in fact, these problems can occur in any church, and unfortunately, they, they probably do occur in any and every church, including our own. So it is in humility that we should be able to relate to the failures of the Corinthians. We've talked about all these things in the last few weeks. We've talked about the quarreling. We've talked about the factions. We've talked about this propensity uh, for them to value and to mimic the wisdom of the world around them. Remember this this wisdom of the world that is characterized by, by winning power struggles, right? It's all power struggles, and it's all about winning. And they value these things and mimic these things over the wisdom of Christ over employing spiritual discernment, which is is seen, is demonstrated in a cruciform love, a cross-shaped love, power through weakness. We've discovered that they were listening to the wrong voices. And last week, we began to discover that they were failing to address serious sin in the church. So there's a lot going on, and, and, and again, my prayer pastorally for us as a church is that, and I trust that God has used these admonitions from Paul to the Corinthians to similarly challenge and convict us. Humility, right? We need to hear this and apply it to ourselves. So that's an introduction to where we have been. I wonder, though, as we move into chapter 6 today, how many of us can immediately relate to the issue Paul is addressing in this passage this morning. Look down with me at chapter 6. I'm going to read the first eight verses. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare 
go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge the angels? How much more, then, matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases... Why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers. To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer a wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud even your own brothers. Have any of you taken a brother or sister in the church to court lately? Ever. Have you ever done this? I have to say, in the 17 years that I've been in full-time pastoral ministry, there hasn't been one time that I can recall, I'm pretty sure, Not one time that I've ever faced this issue. And I have to tell you, I'm beyond thankful for that. But I'm serious. Have you ever faced this issue? I'm guessing not many, if any, of us have. And if not, what do we do with this passage? Should we just skip it? Jordan, we love you. You guys want to come up and pray us out? Do we skip it? Uh, no, we don't. And, and, and I've got to tell you, as I've been studying this week, I've got to say, this is a really important passage for us. For us. Because it considers this. How do we as believers relate to one another when one of us has been wronged? Right? Does that ever happen? Ooh, that happens. That happens, unfortunately, all the time. And even though the tone of this passage Paul's writing to them here is mostly negative right the tone is it's 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 a scolding it's a rebuking here uh I gotta say that it's it's been a really encouraging study for me this week as I've spent time in it we have a lot to learn from this text and I think that you'll find even though it's certainly convicting that there's a beautiful gospel application in store here for us so I want to I want to, to, to pull that out. I think you'll be both challenged, convicted, and encouraged. And I pray that God will use this to continually form us in maturity. Before we get there, let's take a, a second to remind ourselves of the opening verses of the whole letter. Go back to chapter 1. I want to read this again. This is what Paul is, is, is laying out here to sort of set the foundation for all of the things that he has to say in the subsequent passages. They're key, all right? Look at chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all of those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you, peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. 
that in every way you were enriched in Him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Remember that this is all about identity. We've been talking about that so much. Remember who you are, church. This is about identity. We are the church of God. We belong to Him. And our lives, therefore, have, have, have been changed by Him, by this grace, in order that we would be a living testimony in the world. A living testimony of what? Of God's grace to cleanse sinners. Of His mercy to forgive wrongdoers like us. And of the fellowship that He's bestowed upon us as a harmonious community through both the saving and reconciling work of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's who you are. That's what the church is. But when we get our identity wrong, things go badly. <laughs> things go badly. That's something we've seen over and over again here in, in Corinthians, and it's something we're going to see here in chapter 6 as well. What was the problem here? Again, chapter 6, verse 1. When one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints. So at least someone in the church was suing another brother or sister in Christ. There was a lawsuit. Maybe there were multiple lawsuits. We're not told here, but at least one. And by all indications, this was a civil case, not a criminal case. This was a grievance. And I want to make that plain up front, by the way, because it not only sets the context properly for Paul's uh, concerns here and his admonition, but, but it also needs to be said that there's nothing in Scripture, please hear this, there's nothing in Scripture that should prevent us from pursuing criminal offenses to the fullest extent of the law. If a crime is committed, the proper legal authorities should be involved, and I say that, unfortunately, to the shame of so much of the church, the modern church, because we've not always handled this properly, and that's wrong. That's wrong. So I want to be clear about this. If someone has committed a crime against you, something like a physical or sexual assault, extortion or theft, threats of harm, if there's anything that's clearly against the law, then that needs to be handled by the law. So if that happens to you, or if that has happened to you, I, I want you to hear up front that the admonitions of this passage don't apply to your situation. And I also want you to hear up front that we as your elders will never seek to quietly keep that within the church. Okay? So that's a sidebar. It's an important sidebar. Please hear that. But that's not the situation that Paul is addressing here. This is a non-criminal offense. Look at verse 4 again. He says this is trivial, right? It's a trivial matter. It's a common dispute between two people in the church, and again, those things can happen, right? Those things can happen. They happen frequently. 
which is sad but true. But I want you to notice that 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 in and of itself, the fact that it, it happened, that offenses happened, that in and of itself is not the main issue for Paul. His main concern that this this in-house dispute is not being handled in-house. That's his concern. Why is this not ha- being handled in-house, in the church? It's, it's a trivial thing in the church. He's effectively saying this. You, Christians, who have the Spirit of God, you're not seeking to have your disputes settled by other people who also have the Spirit of God. Verse 1, that's what he means by the saints, right? Instead, you're, you're traipsing your dirty laundry of division out in front of non-believers, which is what is meant here by the unrighteous. And Paul says, that's shameful. That's shameful. Why? Get this, because this, this, is, this is something that, that clearly would be on Paul's mind as he's writing this to them. Did you know that the, the Greeks and the Romans, and of course this is, this is where they're at, they're in, they're in a Roman province here, right? Uh, they freely allowed Christians and Jews to settle their own civil disputes in-house. They, they allowed them to do that within their own synagogues. That's what Jews in Roman provinces would do. If a Jewish brother had a civil dispute against another Jewish brother, they would go into the priest and, and, and they would lay out their case. The priest would, would hear their grievances and then, get this, get this, he would open up the scriptures and consult. And as he hears the case, he, he, would, he would say, okay, here's what God's word has to say about that. And they believed, as we should, that God's word had something to say about solving family issues, social issues, cultural issues, financial issues, all kinds of issues, things that pertain to the way that we relate to one another as the people of God. And so, again, they would consult the scriptures. And then a decision would be made by that priest as the mediator there. And that decision was binding and it would be followed. Imagine that. Imagine that. I think what Paul is saying is, do we believe that God's word is sufficient? Do we believe that? It's sufficient to instruct us about not only how to live, but how to live with one another. Do we believe that the Holy Spirit actually indwells us? Do we believe that the Holy Spirit actually guides us towards truth, towards peace? Do you see the identity problem here? The church is the sanctified people of God. Sanctified meaning we've been called out. We've been separated out by God. We aren't supposed to look like the world anymore. And what does the world look like? Remember, it's power struggles, right? It's power struggles. We are to be a display of the cruciform love and self-denial of the gospel. If we go to the non-believers around us and say, listen, you're going to have to step in and settle this for us, we're effectively saying to them, we don't really believe in the power and the sufficiency of the gospel. We don't really believe in the sufficiency of God's word. We've forgotten who we are. Paul says, shall the unrighteous world judge the saints? No, 
In fact, it's just the opposite. Look again at verse 2. Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? Paul is saying, look, not only have you forgotten your identity, I don't think you fully understand the scope of your identity. I, I think you're underselling who, who you actually are. Do you not know that, that you are going to judge the world? Where does he get that? Well, he gets that from, from Jesus himself in Matthew 19, who, who tells his disciples that. When, when he comes back to judge the world, that they will be sitting there to judge along with him. And in Revelation chapter 20, we see that played out. You're going to judge the world. Why would the world judge you? Again, remember, the, the, the wisdom of the world is, is foolishness before God. It's the spiritual discernment, the wisdom of God, power through weakness, that's, that's truly wisdom. And when you, his people, have that, you sit as the wise judges of the world. But not only that, he says here, you're going to judge angels. Would you go, what does that mean? Well, again, uh, we, we, we look to other texts in Scripture. 2 Peter 2 is a great one. God says this, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, so we're talking about the fallen, the fallen angels, if He did not spare them when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and listen, He committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. So in the coming of Christ, when we sit in judgment as His people, over the world, we also will sit in judgment over the angels, which is a crazy thing to consider. But Paul is making this very clear here. Do you even know your identity? And if that's the case, it's sort of this, 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 this irony. You can't solve a trivial problem in the church. Verse 4. If you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? No one who's, who's, who's truly been given the authority and the wisdom to judge rightly. I say this to your shame. Can it be there's no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. You know, there's a terrible irony here. And the irony is this. Remember, Remember the, the, the charge that he's been making against them as they've been trying to, to elevate the wisdom of the world and trying to mimic the wisdom of the world. We're so wise. You're so wise, right? And then he comes here, and the irony of that is, if you're so wise, you can't even find one person who can judge this matter? Brother against brother? This, this is another irony here and it's a sharp rebuke because in even in the secular courts even in the pagan courts in roman and greek culture brother would never take brother to court you'd take somebody who's outside of your family to court perhaps to solve a civil issue but a brother you would never do that because there were household systems in this culture, there, there was the, the, the pater familia, the, the, um, the, the head of the household who would judge within the family. 
And that's the way it was supposed to be. If you were to take a household issue out of the household and put it on display in the public courts, you would bring great shame to the head of your household. He can't solve this. You see what Paul is, is, is saying to them? Who's the head of our household? Christ is our head. A brother taking brother, family member versus family member. What shame this brings upon the head of our house and the state of our house, the unity of our house, the, the love of our house, the effectiveness of our household. Which is why he says here in verse 7, to have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. You might win the lawsuit. I'm telling you, you've already lost. Because you've communicated to one another and to the community around you, we don't believe the gospel. We don't want to honor the headship of Christ as our Lord. We don't really truly see each other as family members. We have disunity that, that is no different than the disunity of the world place around us. I mean, what a, what a loss for the testimony of Christ, for the testimony of the church. You might have won. You've lost. So he says, why not rather be defrauded? Why not rather suffer a wrong? If, if, you, if you consider it in light of that, we, we, have, we, we, we have individual rights but if we hold on to our individual rights over the testimony of Christ, the testimony of the gospel, the testimony of church, what, are we, what have we done? If anything, we've done the exact opposite of what it says to do in Philippians 2, which is to consider others more important than ourselves, right? The witness of the church is decimated. No trust in the gospel, no unity in Christ. Are my individual rights more important than the unity of the church? Ask yourself that question. Are my individual rights more important than the witness of the gospel? Are my individual rights more important than the cruciform testimony of the saints in Christ? Do you understand where Paul has got a pretty negative tone here? This is shameful. This is shameful. So what's the solution? What's the solution? This is where I said there's beautiful gospel application for us here. And it, it doesn't start off sounding like beautiful gospel application, but, but it is. Listen to verse 9. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Such were some of you. We could spend a lot of time evaluating the different sins in this list. But I think if we were to do that, we'd actually run the risk of missing the point that Paul's trying to make here. Notice 
All of these things have several things in common. First of all, none of them are trivial. Right? None of them are trivial. These are, these are serious sins. And, therefore, they are a great offense against God. Right? Serious sins, great offense against God. Therefore, we could say with great confidence, these are things that are worthy of judgment. God is just and righteous to judge sinners, right? Another thing to notice is that they are the result of deception. He says that there in verse 9. Don't be deceived. I think, in other words, these are false identities. They're false identities. None of them trivial. All an offense to God. All worthy of judgment. And why are they here? Kind of feels like a little bit of a left turn, right? Like, we were just talking about lawsuits, and all of a sudden you go into this list of sins. Like, what, what, where's that coming from? I think what he's saying to them is this. If you recognize that all of these things are serious offenses and sinful, that none, no, no one who practices these things is worthy of the kingdom of God, Another, no one who practices these things will inherit the kingdom of God, why would you think that what you're doing over here in the courts where you're taking brother to, course, to court is any different than this kind of sin? In other words, if you're doing this, it's not worthy of inheriting the kingdom of God. The, the, the grievances are trivial. What you're doing with the grievances is anything but trivial. That's the point that I think he's making here. And he says, and such were some of you. In other words, you were like this. But place the emphasis of such were some of you on the word were instead of you. Such were some of you. Such were some of you. You were worthy of judgment, but, verse 11, you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've forgotten the gospel. You're recipients of the grace of God through the gospel. You're not living in light of that by denying the gospel and the power of the gospel and the beauty of the gospel before the world when you're, when you're taking your grievances before them. When you're not rather to be wronged, suffer a wrong, than, than, to, to, than to fight for your, your individual rights very publicly. What Paul wants them to recognize here is the antidote to great offenses is an even greater love. The antidote to great offenses is an even greater love. Love covers a multitude of sins. And this is what God has done for you. I want to tell you a, a, a really... Amazing story. 
Um, a pastor friend of mine from Arizona shared this with me. Uh, he said there, there, were, there were two guys in the city there in Phoenix who had a dispute, a business dispute between them, two believers, and they wanted to be faithful to this text. So these two guys happened to go to different churches, so they called up a pastor of a, of a church that neither one of them went to and asked them, would you hear our dispute and would you, you know, be responsible for, for settling it for us? And whatever you decide, we'll abide by it. So this, this pastor calls my friend, another pastor, and says, would you do this with me? Sure, I'll do that with you. So they go and they hear the case. And it was, again, it was, it was a business dispute. One guy had, had asked the other guy to perform some work for him and paid him up front for that work. And then the grievance was that he said, even though I paid him up front for the work, the work was never performed. And he wanted the money back. The other guy d disagreed, disputed that. They brought their case. The, the two pastors, they got together and they, they prayed together. They heard the case. They, they, they looked through Scripture. And at the end of the day, they determined that, in fact, the first guy, the guy who had paid for the work to be done up front, was indeed right. The work wasn't done by the other guy. And so they decided for, in his favor, like, yeah, you, you, you win this. But one of the things that came out in all of that discovery was that the other guy had fallen on some really hard financial times over the period of these, the course of these events, and that's greatly contributed to him not being able to repay the money. So my friend looks to the, the, the first guy and he says, look, you, you win, We're, we side with you, we agree with you, you've got justice. But here's the thing, I'm not the Holy Spirit, I'm just some pastor, all right? But can I just tell you, now you, having received justice, you have the opportunity to be merciful. And the guy did. And he forgave the debt. Now listen. What earthly court could tell a story like that? What earthly court could tell a story like that? Justice and mercy coming together like that, handling it in-house as brothers within the church. Was the grievance real? Yeah. In the grand scheme, was it trivial? Yeah. Did it have a, an outcome that, that makes the gospel more beautiful, both to these guys and to anyone who would hear that testimony? Absolutely. I said before, I've never seen a lawsuit within the church. But there's one thing I haven't yet said about the courts in Corinth that I think ought to speak to us. Where did these courts function? How did they function in Corinth? Do you remember at the beginning of the, the sermon series, we were talking about the forum, the marketplace, where the, 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 the eloquent speakers, the orators would gather? This is, this is where Paul is, you know, he's, he's basically saying to the church, you've, you've become like them. You can go out to the marketplace and you can hear all these people spewing worldly wisdom and creating partisan politics and divides and, and teams and, and arguing and fighting Nothing unlike what we see happening in our own world right now, right? Partisan 
division. Well, well, that forum, that marketplace where all of that was happening was also the location of the court. So you could go on a Saturday afternoon, you could walk down, you could do a little shopping, you could pick up your, your, your dry cleaning or whatever, right? And, and just happen to walk by and see the, the court proceedings happening where, where there was a judge who was sitting up on an elevated platform and people would bring each other before the judge. They would make their cases. They would throw mud at each other. They would, you know, they would, they would, they would, they would try to, to win. And the crowds could just gather around. And, and very often what the judge would do is he would say, what do you all think? Should this person win? Should this person get the verdict, right? And, and you could have literally juries of hundreds of people. Juries of thousands of people. And all of this done in a, in a, in a, in a mode that's just reeked of entertainment. You say, well, man, good thing that the modern American court system isn't isn't like that. Well, is that true? I'm not, I'm not going to deny our court system is probably a little bit better than that, but did you know that up until earlier this year in 2020, when she retired, Judge Judy was the highest paid person on television? 10 million daily viewers. Do you think we don't have an entertainment mindset when we think about the judicial system? But I also asked this earlier when we were talking about that public square. I asked us to consider, what is the public square today? We don't have a forum like this in modern cities. But what do we have? We have social media, right? We have social media. Social media is our public square. Social media is where we, we, you know, we go to, to listen to the orators, and everybody gets to be an orator on social media. Everybody gets to throw out their opinion. Everybody gets to try to gather people onto their team so that we can argue and fight back and forth. Social media is our public square. So this week, as you consider this, and this week, maybe in particular, right? Something happening on Tuesday? Oh, yeah. Presidential election, right? Nothing divisive about that, of course. This week, listen, church, this week, we have a great opportunity to consider this, and I pray that we would all consider this. When we go into our public square and we say something, Christian A makes this comment out there on social media, what often happens? Christian B comes on and comments on that thread, right? And Christian B might say, yeah, but I totally disagree with you. In fact, I'm questioning even your you're standing as a Christian. How could you say something like that, right? And, and then what happens? There's this argument that takes place on social media before what? The court of public opinion. We're airing our dirty laundry and our divisiveness on social media. And then what happens? Then person A's friend, Joni, gets on and she starts to comment and tell everybody why she thinks that person B is an evil person. And then person B's friend, Bob, comes on and comments against Joni and throws her under the bus and says, this is why person A is an evil person. And now what do we have? We have a jury of hundreds or thousands of people, however many friends you have on Facebook 
or followers on Twitter or whatever. My point is, do you see that we're not that far removed from what Paul's talking about here? And do you see that the great danger for us as modern 21st century American believers is probably not so much that we're going to drag each other into court? Although that is a possibility, and I, I hope that you've learned here that's a bad idea. The greater danger for us is that we're going to drag one another through the court of public opinion and in doing so, proclaim to the world around us we don't have unity. We're willing to take a quote-unquote brother or sister and treat them as if they're not a brother or sister. We don't believe the gospel We don't believe the Word of God is sufficient to work out our grievances. We don't believe that the local church is important enough to keep it in-house and seek godly counsel from the saints rather than air it out before the unrighteous. We are not far removed. The antidote to great offenses is an even greater love. We are the people of God. We are people of the gospel. We are called out to be united, to be one. How dare we, as Paul would say here, how dare we go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? I pray that we'd hear that and I pray that we'd remember the grace of God shown to us. Such were some of you.